I thank God for all who have led us in worship today and for the opportunity to continue a sermon series called Give Me Jesus. We're looking at various passages in the Gospels of the New Testament that show us things about Jesus, our Savior. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Although admittedly, this sermon has many scripture references and is more of a teaching style of sermon. In fact, for you note takers, you're welcome to take notes as always, but I'm happy to send you a copy of the sermon next week. If you just want a written copy of it, you can request that from the church office. But I'll read Luke 10, 38 through 42 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is, Supporting Women in Ministry. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Back in 2005, 2015, I should say, when I was pastoring in Tennessee, I received an email through the church website one day that said this, transferred in from out of state and seeking a sound church for our family. I noticed that one of the sermons on the website was delivered by a female, the pastor's wife. Is female teaching to adults adhered to at your church? It was my belief that the Baptist church stood with the Bible on that subject. Well, I was pretty fired up. I was ready to fire off an email back, you know. That's why you got to take a deep breath when you get certain emails, you know, and not respond right away. The questioner assumed that the Bible prohibits women from preaching and teaching when there are men present. Many churches around the world, including several here in Richmond, hold the same belief. The Southern Baptist Convention believes this so strongly that it recently voted to oust from its fellowship churches that have women serving in pastoral roles. Of course, our church, Second Baptist, is not a Southern Baptist church. And we support women serving in various forms of Christian ministry, including preaching, teaching, deacon service, church leadership, and more. 
But since it's often assumed that our church's approach does not stand with the Bible on this subject, I think it's important for us to understand the robust theological and biblical reasoning for supporting women in ministry. We can begin by noting that women played key leadership roles among God's people in the Old Testament. Consider Miriam. Exodus 15 tells us Miriam was a prophetess, a woman who speaks God's word. Micah 6 names Miriam as one of the three key leaders of the Exodus, alongside Moses and Aaron. As a second example, consider Deborah. Judges 4 says Deborah was a prophetess and the judge of Israel. This means Deborah led God's people for a period of time. As another example, consider Huldah. Now you may not have heard of Huldah, but 2 Chronicles 34 conveys that Huldah was a prophetess who spoke an authoritative word on behalf of God to the high priest Hilkiah and to King Josiah concerning Scripture. Huldah did so because these religious and political leaders had sought her wisdom. There was also Isaiah's wife. Isaiah 8 says that she was a prophetess. We could cite other examples to be sure, but the point is that women served as leaders of God's people and proclaimers of God's word in the Old Testament. Women also played key leadership roles in the New Testament and in the early church. For example, women hosted and led house churches. The earliest churches did not meet in church buildings, but rather in the private homes of Christians, such as Lydia in Acts 16, Nympha in Colossians 4, Chloe in 1 Corinthians 1, and Mary, the mother of John Mark, in Acts 12. According to Bible scholar Linda Belleville, the homeowner in Greco-Roman times was in charge of any group that met in his or her domicile and was legally responsible for the group's activities. Although the homeowner was not necessarily the preacher at each house church worship service, the homeowner was a key leader. And since 1 Corinthians 1 speaks of Chloe's people, and Acts 16 says Lydia's entire household converted to Christ upon her conversion, it appears that Chloe and Lydia basically pastored their house churches. If either had a husband, he is not mentioned at all. In addition to women house church leaders, there were women prophets that declared God's word, including Anna in Luke 2 and the four daughters of Philip in Acts 21. There was also a female deacon named Phoebe. Romans 16 says Phoebe was a deacon of the church at Sincre and a benefactor of the apostle Paul. The Greek term is sometimes translated servant and sometimes translated deacon, but it's the same word translated deacon elsewhere in the New Testament, including 1 Timothy 3, which enumerates the characteristics 
of deacons. Phoebe was such a trusted leader that she carried Paul's letter to the church at Rome and was likely the one who read it aloud to the church gathered there. In all probability, the message of the book of Romans was first experienced through the sound of a female voice. There was also a woman apostle named Junia. Apostle was the highest title in the early church. And Romans 16 says Junia was a prominent apostle. Although a few translations render the name Junius a male name, the manuscript evidence is much stronger for Junia, a female name, which appears in the vast majority of modern Bible translations. Many of Paul's co-workers in the gospel, his fellow missionaries and his fellow ministers, were women. One was Priscilla, also known as Prissa. Romans 16 says Prissa and her husband Aquila led a house church. Acts 18 adds that they taught the mighty preacher Apollos a better understanding of the gospel. This is evidence that a woman corrected a male preacher's doctrine in the early church. Both of these texts mention Priscilla's name before her husband's, suggesting that she was the more prominent leader. Other female co-workers of Paul included Euodia and Syntyche, who are mentioned in Philippians 4, and Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis, all of whom Paul greets in Romans chapter 16. In the context of the first century Roman Empire, men were customarily greeted in letters but to greet so many women by name would have been unusual, even radical. Bible scholar Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza writes, The participation of women in the church at Rome must have been remarkable. Among the 25 persons greeted by name in Romans 16, approximately one-third, eight, are women. Women's roles in the New Testament thus included house church leader, prophet, deacon, apostle, and missionary, among others. Bible scholar Craig Keener observes, some of the roles by which women carried out ministry in the Bible were more authoritative than the offices from which they are often now restricted. Alongside the biblical evidence that women served as preachers and ministerial leaders in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, numerous statements in Holy Scripture support an egalitarian perspective on women in ministry. For example, Joel 2.28 says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. This Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When God's Spirit comes upon the church, the Spirit inspires both men and women, both daughters and sons, to speak God's word in the assembly. To prophesy is basically to preach. And Scripture says, our sons and our daughters shall prophesy. 
Galatians 3 verse 28 adds, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This passage asserts human unity in Christ and human equality in Christ, including gender equality. Additionally, three New Testament passages discuss spiritual gifts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. The spiritual gifts include teaching, prophecy, leadership, and pastoring, and there is no indication that any of these gifts are distributed on the basis of gender. There is also 1 Corinthians 11, 4 through 5, where Paul discusses women who are prophesying at the church in Corinth. He has no problem with it as long as they wear a head covering, which was customary for women back then. Of course, the general head covering requirement for women is now widely understood as a cultural standard of the day rather than a universal principle for all times and places. Despite the vast biblical evidence supporting women in ministry, some of which I have just reviewed, some Christians and churches fixate on a few verses that seem to limit women's roles in the church. The text most commonly cited against women in ministry is 1 Timothy 2.12, which says, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. It's important with this passage, as with all Bible passages, to consider the historical and literary context. Belleville accurately notes that the tone throughout the letter of 1 Timothy is corrective because false teachers needed silencing. With this problem of false teachers in mind, listen to 2 Timothy 3.6. Among them are those who make their way into households and captivate silly women, overwhelmed by their sin and swayed by all kinds of desires. This verse indicates that the false teachers who were threatening the Christian community to which 1st and 2nd Timothy were written were making headway particularly with certain women, which leads Keener to make a cogent point. The one passage in the Bible that specifically prohibits women from teaching is addressed to the one church where we know false teachers were effectively targeting women. Consequently, I would submit that 1 Timothy 2.12 is best understood as a statement geared for a specific time and place rather than a universal principle for all times and places. Another text often cited is 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35, which says, Women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Again, this passage addresses a specific circumstance, this time in the Corinthian church, 
where certain women evidently were causing disorder. I agree with Bible scholar Ben Witherington III that they were probably asking questions during the time of prophesying and thereby disrupting the service. Paul commanded silence from them because he did not want worship to be turned into a question and answer session. In any case, Paul is clearly correcting the abuse of a privilege and not withdrawing a woman's right to speak in the assembly because he has already granted that back in 1 Corinthians 11 where he has no problem at all with women prophesying as long as they are wearing head coverings. A third text cited against women in ministry is 1 Timothy chapter 3, especially verse 2. A bishop must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And verse 12, let deacons be husbands of one wife. The term husbands is often understood to require that bishops and deacons be male. It appears to me that perhaps in this particular Christian community where false teachers were making inroads with women, Women were prohibited from serving as bishops or deacons. But we know from Romans 16 that Phoebe was a deacon in a different Christian community. And thus it's clear that the gender requirements in 1 Timothy 3 were not universally normative in New Testament churches. Therefore, I don't think they should be regarded as universally normative today. What matters most in 1 Timothy 3 are the character traits befitting church leaders, such as temperateness, sensibleness, and hospitality, not the gender specifications. Overall, the scriptures often quoted against women in ministry should be viewed as correctives to specific situations rather than normative principles for all times and places. While it's important to consider the full breadth of the Bible, it's vital to remember that Jesus Christ is the key to all scripture and serves as our primary guide in biblical and theological reasoning. Thus, we must ultimately consider the witness of Jesus in the Gospels. In John chapter 4, Jesus befriends a Samaritan woman at the well. And he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. When she goes running off to tell her whole village about him, he does not say, hey, now wait a minute, let me send a, a Peter or John or Andrew, one of my male disciples, to go and proclaim this news to others. No, it seems instead that Jesus chose to reveal his messianic identity to a woman so that she could proclaim the news to her neighbors. Indeed, many believed in Jesus because of her powerful witness. In Luke chapter 10, Martha scrambles around the kitchen while her sister Mary sits at Jesus' feet, learning as a disciple. Jesus does not say, now Mary, go help your sister because learning the word is for men only. Instead, he celebrates Mary's choice to sit at his feet. He calls it a good choice for her to learn from him as a disciple. Clearly, Jesus is not captive to a rigid understanding of gender roles that privilege men and exclude or subjugate women. 
he rather encourages Mary to pursue theological education as any male disciple would. And yet perhaps the most consequential point of all is that in all four Gospels, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20, the first witnesses and heralds of Jesus' resurrection were women. According to John 20, Jesus chose to make his first resurrection appearance to a woman, Mary Magdalene. According to Luke 24, when the women arrived at the empty tomb early on Easter morning, there were angels who told them that Jesus had risen. The angels didn't say, good morning, ladies, good to see you. Listen, would you please go get Peter or John so we can tell them something really important? Because, you know, we don't permit women to teach or exercise authority over men. No, instead the angels told the women that Jesus had arisen from the grave and then the women went and proclaimed the message to the men. The 19th century preacher, Jarena Lee, defended her own call to preach, saying, Did not Mary first preach the risen Savior? And is not the doctrine of the resurrection the very climax of Christianity? Hangs not all our hope on this as argued by St. Paul? Then did not Mary, a woman, preach the gospel? <laughs> she did indeed. And if male disciples first heard the good news of Jesus' resurrection from women, Surely we must continue hearing the good news from women whom God has called to preach. If God ordained that women be the first to witness and proclaim Jesus' resurrection, how could we hesitate to ordain a woman to the gospel ministry? One Sunday back when I was in high school, I was sitting up in the choir loft at the back of the sanctuary as usual. That's where my brother Rick and me sat because our parents were directors of music there and we'd sit on the back row of the back balcony where we would whisper and perhaps cut up sometimes. The service was going along normally. I was kind of twiddling my thumbs or whatever until I heard a voice from the pulpit that flew through the air to the back of the sanctuary and struck me in a unique way. It was a woman's voice. She was an ordained minister who was serving as the guest preacher for the day while our pastor was out of town. I remember clearly leaning forward to listen intently to her sermon because it was more engaging than many sermons I had previously experienced. In hindsight, I wish it hadn't been so surprising for me to hear a woman preach. And I wish it weren't surprising today for people to hear women preaching the gospel. I'm concerned that certain interpretations function to hold women back rather than moving the gospel 
forward. I hope our church will continue to be a community where women's voices are magnified in preaching, teaching, leadership, and ministry alongside the voices of men. And I hope our church will continue to grow as a community where young girls growing up can discern a call to ministry and receive affirmation and encouragement and empowerment to pursue that call from God. To be clear, I'm not saying it's okay for women to have leadership roles in the church. I'm not saying it's okay for women to be deacons. I'm not saying it's okay for women to preach as God has gifted them. I'm not saying it's okay for women to serve as pastors. I'm not saying it's okay for women to carry out various forms of Christian ministry. I'm saying it's crucial. I'm saying it's vital for the gospel. And I'm saying that to fully, totally, unreservedly, unhesitatingly, completely and joyfully and enthusiastically support women in ministry is to stand with the Bible on this subject. Amen.